So we ready? Do you want to just wait till tomorrow? I know. Yes, no, maybe? It's just through book six? Yeah. Do no. it. Carpe diem. <laughs> maybe I have another to Okay. Um, so, question one. Yes? Um, who comes to visit Adam and Eve? Still missing a Ben and a Julian. All right, oh well. Who comes to visit Adam and Eve? Question two. Who is Abdiel? Question three, who originally leads the host of heaven? Doesn't do so well in the fighting, fights to a kind of standoff. Question four, who finally defeats the rebel angels? Okay, hand them in. Okay, um, we're going to uh, try, for, for um, tomorrow you should be through book nine. Um, that would be one, one reason to do the quiz tomorrow instead of today, but oh well. Um, nevertheless, you should be through book nine for tomorrow. Um, after break, we have four official classes, but we're also going to do the optional makeup on reading day. Um, so we're really going to want to... Um, finish, you're going to want to finish Paradise Lost and take a quiz on it um, the Wednesday that we come back. That is to say, that's a Brandeis Monday, which means makes no difference for this class. Um, and uh, Ben, you'll take the quiz after class, right? Okay. Um, which means we won't go over it now. Um, all right. What we were talking about on Monday was the extent to which um, Milton is thinking that the proper judge of God's actions 
the proper judges of God's actions are human beings and no one else. And it's in one way or another clear that the judgments of the rebel angels will be partial. Um, that's to use a word from um, book two of Paradise Lost. That is one of the things that the rebel angels do to while away the time in hell is to sing epic songs about their war in heaven. And the narrator tells us um, that their song was partial, but it still held hell suspended in rapture because how could it otherwise when immortal spirits sing? So they sing a partial song, um, but still a beautiful song about their fall. Um, then the important point to see was that the angels also are not quite as um, reliable from our point of view as judges as we would want them to be. It's not that in this battle, let's say it is a battle of good versus evil, it's not that in this battle of good versus evil, the characters who are good are, um, that their judgment is reliable. The angels themselves, when asked to put themselves on the line, don't. Only one person does. Remember I said that person is going to mean any rational creature in Paradise Lost. Only one person does, namely, the sun. And, the way he does it is to say, account me man. Treat me as a human rather than an angel. We've seen the sun in the first seven lines of Paradise Lost, one greater man of man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree whose mortal taste brought death into the world and all our woe with loss of Eden till one greater man restore us. So it's really important to see that it's not only for technical reasons that the son becomes human, that is to say, becomes human in order to pay the debt that humans have to pay. Um, you may know or may not know um, that according to Robert's Rules of Orders, and this is a frequent case in Congress, um, you, if you vote on the winning side of a resolution in Parliament or in Congress in a, in a parliamentary procedure, you are then <coughs> entitled to call for a revote, to call for a reconsideration. If you've been on the lo losing side, you're not entitled to call for a reconsideration. You're nodding um, with very great familiarity with this? Yeah. Um, why are you familiar uh, with it? A whole lot of uh, student council in high school. Oh, was about, yeah. Okay, so what'll happen is when um, uh, the, the House or the Senate are about to pass some ridiculous bill, one member of the opposition will, when it's clear that the majority is going to go the other way, one person, usually the leader of the opposition, who's against what the majority is about to vote on and knows that the vote is lost, the leader of the opposition will vote with the majority in order then to be able to ask for um, a reconsideration later. Um, so if you voted with the majority, you can do that. Um, so they'll vote with the majority as a tactical maneuver. That's not what the son is doing. He's not simply joining, 
the opposition to God, um, namely human beings, in order then to be in a position to um, have God forgive them. He's joining humans because he's becoming human. And he's becoming human, and this is really what I want to suggest as you read the rest of the poem, because as Paradise Lost understands things, the deepest beings in the universe are human beings. The deepest persons in the universe are human beings. Deeper than the rebel angels, deeper than the loyal angels. Um, the question of whether they're deeper than God is, um, in a sense, a, a, a skew question. Um, depth isn't one of God's features. Um, there's no reason for it to be, because depth means something like thoughtfulness and anguish. And there's no reason for God to be thoughtful or anguished. Um, he knows. He doesn't have to um, think. But um, the most thoughtful creatures in the universe, in Milton's universe, are humans. That's why they are the ones who ultimately get to judge God's ways. Um, that's why the justification is to humans rather than to anyone Else. Um, an easy way to see this and a kind of um, grim way to see it is to look at the invocation, um, excuse me, not the invocation, but the um, um, argument to book five um, where you get extraordinary irony in Milton's plot summary <clears throat> of what's about to happen in book five. And not only is there extraordinary irony in the, in the plot summary, um, but the plot summary is a little bit wrong, or at least it's, it suggests things that are a little bit wrong. So argument to book five, morning approached. Eve relates to Adam her troublesome dream. He likes it not, yet comforts her. They come forth to their day labors. They're mourning him at the door of their bower. So they have this beautiful morning hymn at the door of their bower. Wonderful, beautiful. Shift to heaven. God, to render man inexcusable, sends Raphael to admonish him of his obedience, of his free estate, of his enemy near at hand, who he is and why his enemy, and whatever else may avail Adam to know. So here are Adam and Eve at their bower, hymning, God's greatness and the greatness of his creation and his wondrousness. Think of the lady in Comus. They're saying the same sort of thing at, at the beginning of their bower. And we shift immediately. While they're singing praise and gratitude towards God, God is up in heaven figuring out ways to render them inexcusable for what they're going to do, to get them into more trouble so that they don't have an excuse for what they're going to do. <clears throat> and Raphael knows this. So the affable archangel, who spends all this wonderful time chatting with Adam and Eve, also knows that he is an instrument of entrapment. Again, in the legal sense of entrapment. Um, you can't bust someone it's, it's the defense, if you try to do this, is if you're an um, undercover cop and you sell some pot to a kid, you can't then bust the kid for buying pot because that's entrapment. 
because you yourself made the crime possible that you're then arresting them for. You can buy pot from someone and then bust them, but you can't bust them for the fact that they bought it from you. That's entrapment. But that's what God is doing here. He's entrapping, he's causing Raphael to make the situation one in which they have no excuse. And not only that, but Raphael conspicuously fails in one of the assignments, namely to warn Adam that his enemy is near at hand. You would think that if you wanted to give Adam fair warning, or Adam and Eve fair warning, you might mention that Satan was actually in their bower, in their bedroom, squatting by Eve's ear, whispering things into her ear, that he's that close, that the danger is not one of, well, this is what, how stuff happened before you were born, um, that it's not like what the Vietnam War is to you all, like, yeah, it was terrible, but, you know, also that was in a different world, the world that existed before I was born, um, which is um, as far away um, from you. I mean, just think of the difference between 10 years ago for you and 20 years ago, or 30 years ago for you. Um, 30 years ago for you is like barely any closer than World War I, um, whereas 10 years ago for you is like, um, yeah, that matters. Well, Satan was there <coughs> 10 hours ago, and Raphael doesn't mention that. Um, and yet he's supposed to tell Adam aught that would avail him to know. And that, I think, would be pretty darn availing um, for him to know that. Um, but he doesn't know it. But the important thing to see is that I don't want to say, no, oh, Raphael, you know, he turns out to be a hypocrite and um, someone who is actually conniving in making Adam and Eve deserve punishment. I think he's just sort of shallow. He's called the affable archangel, and he is affable, and he's really, really friendly, um, and he really likes them, and they like him, and there's real friendship that's going on between Raphael and Adam and Eve. Um, no doubt about it, but it never occurs to him that what is that there's something tragic in the very conversation that he's having. Um, he's living in the moment. It's a fun time. He likes them. He gets along with them. That's all fun. Um, and he really does like them. He genuinely likes them. Um, it's, you know, one of those uh, familiar but wonderful narrative modes where you get genuine affection and friendship between people who turn out to be on the opposite sides of things. But I mean, in a, in a fun way, affection and friendship, not in a deep way. And what Raphael, in a sense, can tell you, it's great when he blushes. You haven't gotten to that yet, but it's great when he blushes. Um, that's the best thing about him, is Raphael blushing. And everything he says to Adam ought to avail him to know. He's concerned about Adam. He, he likes Adam. He'd like to see Adam not fall. Um, but not enough that it would occur to him to say, God has foreseen your fall. He knows you're going to eat the apple. You really need to work at proving him wrong because he already sees that you're going to do it. 
Now, that could be a mistake also. That could be a self-fulfilling prophecy thing. Um, we've seen that in Calvinist antinomian. If they know they're going to eat the apple, they're going to say, so what's the point of not eating it? Um, there could be quite another story of the fall that would occur with another Raphael warning them of what we know about. But the point is that Raphael's friendliness is as deep as angelic friendliness can be. And that turns out not to be very deep. And it's not that Raphael is a hypocrite. Again, I stress this. He's likable. We should like him. It's that he's not a person who would read Paradise Lost and see that it was a great poem. He's not a person who could be part of what Milton will call, we already saw this, a fit audience for Paradise Lost. Again, the idea of justifying the ways of God to men, that is, justifying to men the ways of God, gets picked up again in Milton's looking for a fit audience, though few. Fit audience, that's crucial. The fit audience for Paradise Lost is humanity. Not God, not Raphael, not Satan, although Satan would come closest, but humanity, including the son as a human being. Yeah, Vina. I just had a quick question. Do you think this shallowness is the kind of the same sort of thing, the opposite side of the kind of shallowness that makes the angels just praise God no matter? Yes, yeah, not the opposite side, the obverse, you mean. Right, yeah, yeah. sorry. Yes, yeah, um, that makes them praise God but not take any yeah. burden of pain on themselves. To evaluate or anything like that. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's whatever is is right, to quote Pope. Um, that is, if God is doing it, it's got to be good. That's all they need to know. In a way, what that means is that um, they um, uh, cede their judgment, their own judgment to God. The angels do not judge. What they do is they know, let's say, that God being good will only do good things. And so they don't have to think because they already know. But the great thing about the son is that he thinks. He knows, but he also thinks. For him, it's not enough to know. If all you need to do is know, life is easy. Because all you then do is the stuff that you know is right. And it's very easy to know what's right. It's what God says. But what the angels don't do and humans do do is to think. And we are asked to think at the beginning of the poem, and we are asked to think again throughout the poem, including when Milton addresses a fit audience, though few. Um, look now at the opening to book four. This is something that usually is not identified as an, in, as an invocation, but that I would like to because it's a failed invocation. But in a sense, it's the clearest invocation of all of them in Paradise Lost, because you get it in the first line. Oh, for that warning voice. He wants to have himself a voice that has been heard. 
2,000 years ago or 1,660 years ago, actually 1,600 years ago, 1,560 roughly, um, about 100 A.D. Um, I think that's when Revelations is thought to be. Um, he wants himself to hear from heaven a voice or to be able to cry with the voice from heaven that was heard by John of Patmos, the voice of Revelations, the voice that John hears in the last book of the Bible, Revelations. So book one begins with, I want to hear, I want the spirit to come to me that came to Moses and that taught him how in the beginning the heavens and earth rose out of chaos. So the invocation in book one is the invocation to the God or to the spirit of God who gave Moses the five books of Moses on Mount Sinai, which is the conventional idea which Milton knew. That is that even what happens after Mount Sinai, um, Moses already had the books um, on Mount Sinai. He got them with the Ten Commandments. That's the Talmudic view. Um, and Milton knew the Talmudic view. Um, so he wants that spirit to come to him at the beginning of book one. Now we're at the beginning of book four, and he wants another version of God to come to him. That is the voice that St. John the Divine heard, which brings you the book of Revelations. Do people know about this? Okay. So that's the voice that he wants to hear, the voice that said, woe to the inhabitants on earth. Because what would have happened if he'd heard that voice? Oh, for that warning voice, which he who saw the apocalypse, apocalypse literally means the uncovering. Um, that's what the word means. The apocalypse is the uncovering. We talk about the apocalypse as being the end of the world. But what John saw was what the end of the world would look like. The end of the world was uncovered to him. Um, so it's a way of seeing what things really are. It doesn't necessarily mean disaster. What John showed, however, is that when um, the apocalypse was done, when the uncovering occurred, he saw the disaster that would be the end of the world. So that's just a vocabulary point. Um, oh, it, it literally means revelation. To reveal is to move the veil backwards, um, to uncover. So, oh, for that warning voice which he who saw the apocalypse heard cry in heaven aloud, that then when the dragon put to second rout came furious down to be revenged on men. So the dragon, that is Satan, has been routed again, but he comes furious down to be revenged on men. Oh, for that voice which cried, woe to the inhabitants on earth. If only he had that voice, that now, while time was, our first parents had been warned the coming of their secret foe and scaped, haply so, scaped his mortal snare. For now Satan, now first inflamed with rage, came down, the tempter ere the accuser of mankind, to wreak on innocent, frail man his loss of that first battle and his flight to hell. So... Literally, this needn't be an invocation. That is, O oh, for that warning voice can mean something like, I wish a warning voice had occurred 6,000 years ago when this happened. But you don't begin a book of an epic saying, O oh, for that warning voice, and simply mean, you know, 
oh, that there had been another tree there, or oh, that there had been a fence um, around um, the, the tree of, of knowledge. Oh, for that warning voice means the expression of a wish. It always does. That's the natural idiomatic use of that. You know, my horse, my horse, a kingdom. A horse, a horse, a ki- my kingdom for a horse. It doesn't mean, I think horses have gone extinct, and I'm very <laughs> unhappy about that. If only someone were to tell me there was a horse somewhere in the world, I would give my kingdom away. Richard the Third, dude. <laughs> oh, for that warning voice means I want it. And what kind of voice he, does he want? He wants a voice that will echo back 6,000 years to Eden. He wants a voice loud enough that Adam and Eve will be able to hear it from the future. He wants a voice outside of time, like God's. And even if you take it, oh, I wish, doesn't have to be his voice, but any voice to warn them of this, even if you take it to mean that, the whole point about book five is the person who doesn't have that voice is Raphael. Yeah, Milton is saying, here's how, the, here's how things could have worked out. If Raphael had come to Adam and said, woe to the inhabitants on earth, then maybe while Eve was, you know, fixing the hors d'oeuvres, then maybe they wouldn't have fallen. But instead, he's very affable with them. They have a good time. But he neglects to mention what he should have mentioned. He neglects to warn them. God sends him down to warn them. Milton knows what a good warning would look like. Raphael doesn't give them that good warning. And that's, I think, an important thing to see because then the reason it matters that it's Milton, that is, A, there's no such voice. B, Milton wishes he had that voice because that would have been the voice of a human being telling them what's going on. A human being might have convinced them of the danger they were in, of the depth of that danger. Might have said to them what death is so that Adam can't just say, would e'er death be? A dreadful thing, no doubt. He might have said to them what it means to be innocent and frail, what it means that the fruit of that forbidden tree will bring death into the world in all our woe. He might have told them all that. Raphael doesn't. Raphael gives them what one critic has aptly characterized as second-rate science fiction. The war in heaven. They're all wearing armor even though they're ethereal spirits. They get hit, they, they kind of leak out of their armor, kind of like um, in T2, but then they remorph back into themselves and it's all fine. Um, then they fight again. Um, it's not I real. Like to say that like yes. That's what Emerson says. Ah, all the angels leaking out of their armor all the time. Um, but that's not what it's like. That's not the human experience. That's a, that's a, that's a kid's version of toy soldiers battling each other that you're getting here. He can't. He has to sort of find a way to describe it to humans. Yeah. That's part of the problem. 
Yeah. Oh man, I'll have to think of how to say this in words that humans can understand. Yeah. But inability to capture heavenly things. Yeah, although he says, but maybe it's not so different as you think. Yeah. Um, he does have that hint, which is an interesting one because um, the hint is uh, Mil Milton himself is, is being uh, cautious about how different heaven is from earth. Um, in Dante, it's as different as you can possibly imagine. Um, in Milton, it may not be all that different. Um, one thing, for example, that Milton knows, it's interesting to... Um, um, compare Milton's knowledge with what Raphael tells Adam and Eve. Um, as you'll see, one of the things that they ask is, is a Comus-like um, question, which is, why is the entire heaven, those stars are just so far away from us, and yet they're wheeling around us every 24 hours? That just seems so wasteful. And Milton, of course, knows that the Earth is not the center of the universe, but Adam and Eve don't know that. Milton is up on modern <laughs> science, um, got people who took um, uh, humanities with me last term. Do you remember the only contemporary person mentioned in Paradise Lost? Person Milton actually met? Galileo. Galileo. Yeah. Um, so Milton actually puts someone he's met IRL into Paradise Lost. Only one. Um, but the one who knew more about the heavens than anyone else. And so by putting him in, Milton is essentially saying, um, I can give you a perspective on this um, that humans have figured out, that Raphael will make some fun of when he makes fun of Ptolemaic astronomy with cycles and with epicycles scribbled ore. Um, but Galileo got it right, and Milton gets it right. Um, and in a sense, what Milton, just to, just to mention this, Milton at the very start of the poem says, I'm going to try, my song will pursue things unattempted yet in prose or rhyme. My, my poem that with no middle flight intends to soar while it pursues things unattempted yet in prose or rhyme. That word attempted is going to be a word that um, Beelzebub picks up on. He tempted our attempt and wrought our fall, he says. However, unattempted yet in prose or rhyme, by rhyme, let's just say he means poetry. Um, so what poets have not attempted, what poets in particular is he thinking about who have not attempted as great an epic as Paradise Lost? Who are the possibilities? This poem is greater than anything. I'm going to attempt to do something greater than any poem has ever done before. And in particular, greater than? Homer. Yeah. Yes, Homer and Virgil. The last two great epics or epic poets were Homer in the Iliad and the Odyssey and Virgil in the Aeneid. But, you know, they were only, they were partial too. They were talking about non-Christians and the gods they were talking about are going to turn out to be who? Fallen the fallen angels, who get themselves new names among the sons of Eve, and the names that they get themselves are the names of the Greek and Etruscan and Roman and Egyptian gods. Um, it's, again, worth noting, and I will just note it, but one of the most beautiful sections of Book One of Paradise Lost, not sublime but beautiful, um, if that's a distinction that makes sense to you, and it should, um, beautiful uh, has a sense of, um, of rest and respite about it, where the sublime doesn't. We can just leave it at that. Um, but um, 
Book one, line, um, let's start at line 721. Um, what's happening is pandemonium. Milton invents that term, by the way. Um, pandemonium, the palace of the fallen angels, all demons, it literally means, or of all demons, um, is built in hell. The ascending pile soon fixed her stately height, and straight the doors opening their brazen folds discover wide within her ample spaces or the smooth and level pavement. From the arched roof, pendant by subtle magic, many a row of starry lamps and blazing cressets fed with naphtha and asphaltus yielded light as from a sky. Um, if you've read um, the His Dark Materials trilogy, you will remember that in Lyra's world, they talk about naphtha, where we would talk about oil. Um, they also talk about amber, where we would talk, and ambaric energy, where we would talk about electricity. Those are Greek and Latin names for the same thing. In, also in Hebrew and in, uh, in Russian. Yeah, yeah. Um, th so those are Greek and Latin. Th that's, that's a Greek root for what, in English, we use Latin roots for. Um, but in other languages, um, like Russian, the Greek roots are used. Um, if you know what electrum is, do people know what electrum is? Electric, electric jewelry made of electrum. Um, you, you can find it online. Um, it's another name for amber. Amber and ambaric electrum and electricity. Um, they're connected. At any rate, um, Pullman picks up on this with naphtha and asphaltus. These lamps yielded light as from a sky. The hasty multitude admiring entered, and the work some praise and some the architect. His hand, the architect's hand, was known in heaven by many a towered structure high where sceptered angels held their residence and sat as princes, whom the supreme king exalted to such power and gave to rule each in his hierarchy, the orders bright. So the architect of hell had been in heaven. Um, it's almost as though Milton is foretelling Albert Speer here, the Nazi architect. Um, the architect of hell had also built much of heaven. And the sceptered angels live in his palaces in heaven. Nor was his name unheard or unadored in ancient Greece. So he was known in Greece also. And in Ausonian land, that is to say in Italy, men called him Mulciber. So in Greece, he's known as Hephaestus. In Italy, as Mulciber. And Vulcan. And Vulcan. He also was in the armor builder as well. Yes. And how he fell from heaven, they fabled. So in Greece and in Rome, they told fables of how he fell from heaven. So the story is there in the Iliad, how Hephaestus or Mulciber fell from heaven. How did he fall thrown by angry Jove, sheer or the crystal battlements? From morn to noon he fell, from noon to dewy eve, a summer's day, and with the setting sun dropped from the zenith like a falling star on Lemnos, the Aegean Isle. So those lines you should know, thrown by angry Jove up to on Lemnos, the Aegean Isle, are, except that he makes it third person rather than first, is a literal translation of lines at the end of book one of the Iliad. Except that Hephaestus slash Malsabur is speaking. He's saying it's too hard to fight against Zeus um, I remember how he threw how he threw me sheer or the crystal battlements, and how I fell from morn to noon to from noon to dewy eve, etc. It's 
probably the greatest single translation into English of a passage in Homer, these five lines of Paradise Lost. Um, and then he goes on, thus they relate erring, for he with his rebellious route fell long before. So notice what he does. He says, they tell the story of the fall of Malsaber. I quote the story that they tell, and then I tell you it's wrong. Thus they relate erring, because he actually fell before that. <clears throat> there is the vestigial truth of his fall from heaven, but it wasn't angry Jove. It was God. And the reason he fell was that he was one of the rebel angels. And he didn't fall on Lemnos the Aegean Isle. He fell into hell. So they got some of it right, but only a dim echo of the truth, which I, Milton, am telling in my song, which here pursues things unattempted in prose or rhyme. So we've now come full circle. Rhyme means the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid. That is, it means poetry. What about prose? Things unattempted yet in prose or rhyme. What's the prose he means? The Bible. So he's actually telling you, look, I'm going to try to justify the ways of God to you, which is going to be really hard. Because not only did Homer and Virgil not do it for obvious reasons, they were, they got the story, they, they were um, uh, hoodwinked by myth or by mythological um, distortion of the truth, but the Bible didn't do it either. Why doesn't the Bible do it? Well, the argument to Book 5 tells you. Because God's version of the story isn't good enough. God's version of the story might be good enough for the loyal angels. God's version of the story might be might work in heaven. But it's not good enough for humans. Again, those humans, including Jesus, including the Son of God. So those in a position to judge, is this the last time I'll say this? No, but I'll claim it's the last time. Those in a position to judge in this poem are humans, not the fallen angels, not the loyal angels, not God who doesn't have to judge. He just does, does what? Um, does the good it pleases him to do. But it's the humans who judge. The fit audience for this poem are humans. The judges of the actions in this poem are humans. No one else has the depth of judgment that's required. If you were to try to put a hierarchy of depth of judgment, it seems fairly clear that if the humans judge most deeply after the humans, Satan is the best judge. And it's only after Satan that you get to the Raphaels and Michaels of Paradise Lost. So if you're only, if you're looking at these things pairwise, in the battle, this is how Blake did it, in the, in the um, uh, opposition between the rebel and the loyal angels, the rebel angels are deeper. At least Satan is. The rest, maybe not so much, but it doesn't matter. Satan is. Um, and maybe Abdiel is deep enough, um, but he's not like the other loyal angels. So if you, if you look, as I say, um, one versus another, if you pair them off, 
the fallen angels are deeper than the loyal angels, but the humans are deeper than the fallen angels. And the sun is more or less on the human side of depth. And then we have to make yet one more distinction, which is fallen versus unfallen humans. And you have to ask yourself, who are deeper, the fallen or the unfallen humans? And it seems pretty clear the fallen humans are deeper. And that's something that we'll get to starting tomorrow um, as we get to book nine. I didn't mention, by the way, that there might be surprise quiz in this class, did I? I, sh I guess I should mention that, even, even if it takes away some of the surprise. Um, just a little of the surprise. Okay. That idea of the death of the humans, that's what to try to hang on to. So now let's go back to book four and um, look at Satan once he gets to Eden. Oh, by the way, I did want to I did want to draw your attention to um, the passage uh, that I was looking for the other day, which actually is in book nine, um, which is uh, book nine, line ninety nine. This is Satan on Earth again. The second time he looks around. It's a kind of repetition, but with a difference. <coughs> of um, his attitude in book four. But in book nine, his bursting passion into, first from inward grief, his bursting passion into plaints thus poured. Um, hang on to that word inward. The word I've been using is depth, but another word that you can use is inwardness. Um, they're practically synonymous as they're, they're sort of synonymous metaphors about the human soul or the human mind. To be inward and to be deep are synonymous. Julian? And uh, he uses inward um, in the invocation of book three, shine inward. Yeah, good. Good. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but also a lot of inwardness. And Adam, as you're going to see in book nine, breaks his silence inwardly before he speaks. Um, the first time that a human being thinks without speaking aloud in the history of humanity. But now, Satan pours out his inward grief, and he says, O oh, earth, how like to heaven, if not preferred more justly. Notice he uses the word justly. He cares about justice. He's wrong, let's say, about what is just, but he cares about justice. O oh, earth, how like to heaven, if not preferred more justly. Seat worthier of gods as built with second thoughts, reforming what was old. Reforming is a really crucial word for Milton. Um, not obviously in the poem, but the reformation, the reforming of the church, the reforming of the history of Christianity, that's what Milton was all about as a politician as built, O oh earth, how like to heaven, if not preferred more justly, seat worthier of gods, as built with second thoughts, reforming what was old, for what God, after better, worse would build. Terrestrial heaven danced round by other heavens that shine 
yet bear their bright officious lamps light above light for thee alone, as seems in thee concerning, concentering all their precious beams of sacred influence, as God in heaven is center, yet extends to all, so thou centering receives from all those orbs. So it's the beauty of earth, more beautiful than the heaven that lights it. God is one center, the earth is another. They are the two foci of the universe for Satan. And again, I think that you have to take that very seriously, that earth is a metaphoric center. Yeah, and preferred more justly, preferred when it comes to justice. As Frost will echo these lines, Earth's the right place for love. I don't know where it's likely to go better. So again, that's another way of saying what I said I wouldn't repeat. But now look at Satan in book four. He looks at the sun and he soliloquizes um, his grieved look. He fixes sad sometime towards heaven and the full blazing sun, which now sat high in his meridian tower, then much revolving, thus in size began. This, these are the first lines that, of Paradise Lost that were written, what's about to follow. Um, about 20 years before the rest, uh, before Milton finished the poem, he thought of writing a play called Adam Unparadised. Terrible title. But on the other hand, if, it had, if he'd written the play and had become famous, everyone would say, oh yes, Adam Unparadised, that great play, and what a brilliant title it is. People get used to titles. Um, and then something we would realize is terrible, well, we would have thought it was great. O thou, he says to the sun, O thou that with surpassing glory crowned, looks from thy soul dominion like the god of this new world at whose sight all the stars hide their diminished heads. To thee I call, but with no friendly voice. And add thy name, O sun, to tell thee how I hate thy beams that bring to my remembrance from what state I fell, how glorious once above thy sphere, till pride and worse ambition threw me down, warring in heaven against heaven's matchless king. And then it's, it's just crucial. We have a minute. It's crucial to see what happens here. Ah, wherefore, he deserved no such return from me, whom he created what I was in that bright eminence, and with his good abraded none, nor was his service hard. What could be less than to afford him praise, the easiest recompense, and pay him thanks, how do? Yet all his good proved ill in me, and wrought but malice. Lifted up so high I stained that his disdained subjection and thought one step higher would set me highest and in a moment quit the dead immense of endless gratitude. So burdensome, still paying, still to owe, forgetful what from him I still received and understood not that a grateful mind by owing owes not, but still pays at once, indebted and discharged, what burden then? So all he had to feel was gratitude. But what he couldn't stand was the fact that all he had to feel was gratitude. He was, he didn't, how can you possibly be grateful enough for the fact that all you have to do is feel grateful? If he'd had to do more, if God had said, look what I've done for you, will you go to earth to save human beings because look at what all, all I've done for you? Satan might well have said yes. He would have said, yes, I can pay you back by doing that. What's impossible for him is that he can't pay God back, and he can't pay God back for the fact that all he has to do is be grateful, and that's enough. 
But again, notice that it's his mind that matters here. His sin is in his own choice and experience of his own choice. So as Adam and Eve will experience the fact that they've disobeyed, Satan experiences the fact that he cannot stand feeling grateful. That he feels grateful but can't stand feeling grateful. And that he therefore decides he's going to end a situation in which he's feeling grateful. And that's Adam and Eve share with Satan, the fall of Adam and Eve share with the fall of Satan, the sense of it's being an inward refusal of a feeling that um, the very fact that you're refusing it changes how you feel. The fact that you're refusing it makes you realize that you're full of guilt. And the fall is the fall into guilt. They don't feel guilty because they fall. They feel guilty because they feel guilty. Because their reaction is one which makes them feel guilty. And then they know they fall. Julian. I just want to say, yeah, the, uh, this, the idea of kind of fighting this feeling of indebtedness is really similar to, uh, to Homer, the idea of, of, of having to be a possible. Of has, uh, yeah. Exactly. And having to, having to be thankful and kind of. Having yeah, to give back. and having to give back. That's precisely right. 